0: Let us pray. One thing we ask, Lord, to live in the beauty of your word and to be transformed by its wisdom and wonder. Send your spirit that we might abide within your presence and live in the house of the Lord all the days of our lives. A reading from the prophet Isaiah, chapter 62, verses 1 to 5, the word of the Lord. and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. You shall no more be termed forsaken, and your land shall no more be termed desolate. But you shall be called my delight is in her, and your land married. For the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thank you, Jenny. It was marital hell. Rick and Kay... Warren are one of the most public ministry couples in America, and uh, they seemed on the surface to have the ideal marriage. They were married at the age of 21, sharp-looking, intelligent, future ahead of them, and yet their brand-new marriage took an instant nosedive. Uh, Kay Warren writes it this way. She says, We didn't even make it to the end of our two-week honeymoon to British Columbia before we knew our relationship was in serious trouble. We had been warned about five areas of potential conflict that all couples have to deal with, and we immediately jumped into all five of them. Sex, communication, money, children, and in-laws. And then we argued about our arguments and began to layer resentment on top of resentment. It was a perfect setup for misery and and marital disenchantment. We're going to talk about marriage today. If you're here and you're single and you're like, Greg, I would love to hear you preach on singleness. Um, middle May of 2017, there's a wonderful sermon online on the memorial website on singleness from First Corinthians 7. But you've actually never heard me preach on marriage. Uh, you've maybe been to a wedding and heard me do a seven-minute homily on marriage. You've heard me preach about sex, perhaps, and that tends to Involve marriage. Uh, We hope we try to work that direction. Uh, You know, uh, you've heard me preach about singleness. You've heard me preach about parenting. But somebody else has always done the sermon on on marriage. And yet today, um, I I don't consider myself an expert. But we've got a guest preacher. His name is Paul, Uh, and he's going to talk to us from Ephesians chapter five about uh, marriage and what all that involves. Uh, it's Ephesians chapter 5, verses 21 to 33. Uh, my prayer is that God will speak to all of us, because this isn't just an individualistic thing where if you're married, Paul is speaking to you. He's speaking to us as a church, and we are all invested in one another's marriage. And maybe you're not married. Maybe God has called you to not marry. Maybe right now, maybe not ever. But he has called you into a community, and into a family, where you have a calling and responsibility to actually help make marriages in this church thrive in a way that they would not thrive without the gospel and without you in their life and so God's talking to all of us here through Paul his apostle Ephesians 5 beginning in verse 21 this is the word of the Lord submit to one another out of reverence for Christ wives submit to your husbands as to the Lord For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now, as the whole church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. And husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless in the same way. Husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it just as Christ does the church, for we are all members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you must also love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. These are the words of Christ through his apostle. What is it that Jesus is wanting us as a church to understand? First of all, he's wanting us to understand that marriage, like all Christian relationships, is all about self-sacrifice. Do you notice the context? He says, all of us, in all of our relationships as Christians are called to a submissiveness toward one another. It's the first verse we read, verse 21, part of being uh, equipped and empowered by, by, by God's grace and his gospel is that we are submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. No, this is not a passage about how wives are supposed to be submissive to their husbands. This is a passage about how God has called every one of you to be submissive to one another in all of your relationships. And then he talks about what that looks like for a submissive husband and a submissive wife. What is submission? Nobody gets a pass on it. Uh, Submission is a humility that values others and prioritizes others above yourself. And marriage is all about that kind of submissiveness, that mutual submission, that self-sacrifice. Instead of constantly trying to gain leverage over your spouse, you're giving up leverage You're empowering your spouse. You're freeing your spouse. You're prioritizing your spouse over yourself. It's a a posture of of humility and purposeful, intentional, willing, freely given deference. Deliberate. Purposefully choosing to find your strength in Christ and not in your dominance relationally. That's every relationship. Nobody gets a pass. He calls it mutual submission. Submit to one another out of reverence. For Christ. And he specifically gives a motivation here. It's out of a motivation of reverence for Christ. You don't, you don't defer to someone else or submit to them or put them first because they're better than you or smarter than you or more powerful than you or, 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 or somehow above you. You do it as a posture of, of love because they're made in God's image and, and you are reverencing Christ in them, even if they're not somebody who's at all worthy of deference to put their needs before your own to sacrifice for them to love them in any relationship this is the case but it's 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 crystallized so much within marriage where where what you're offering is not ultimately for their sake but you're doing it out of reverence for Christ whose image they bear and if they're a brother or sister in Jesus you're doing it out of Christ who purchased them for himself just as he purchased you you, know? you don't just yield submission to somebody when you agree with them because that's actually not submission. Submission only comes into play when you're actually disagreeing and you're saying, okay, I'm going to put you first. I'm going to defer. I'm going I'm to let go of this one and trust that God is big enough to take care of us if we make a wrong decision. But, you know, we submit to Jesus and other people. Because marriage is about self-sacrifice. It's about mutual submission. And he, he talks some about what that looks like. Paul probably knew some married people. He greets them all the time. And, and, and he talks some about what that means for a husband, what that means for a wife. Um, just as illustrative. In verse 23, he says, Husbands, what mutual submission looks like for you as a husband is self-sacrificial love for the sake of your wife. He says, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Uh, you know, and then he clarifies in verse 33, what that means is each of you must also love his wife as he loves himself. To sacrifice your own interests. To sacrifice your need to be dominant or to feel powerful or to get your way or to be successful. To sacrifice your career. To sacrifice your honor. To sacrifice your reputation. To sacrifice your finances in order to make sure that your wife is cared for and loved and protected to create a safe place for her in which she can thrive at God's calling in her life. That's what it is for a husband. It's, it's self-sacrificial. It's going to a cross every single day and dying for her as Christ did for the church. That's what a, a submissive husband looks like, he says. And he describes a submissive wife when he says, wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. He then goes and clarifies what that looks like. In verse 33, he says, the wife must respect her husband. You know, Wives, you have such incredible power in your husband's life. You don't understand the power that you have. Because we men, I'm not making a broad theological statement. This is just me speaking out of experience. We, we have a huge longing to be respected. And it can be healthy, it can be unhealthy. It's what drives us. To succeed in our careers. It's why when we don't succeed, we feel like such failures and, and just wish we were dead. And the power a wife has when you put down your husband, you insult him, you mock him, you roll your eyes at him, you make fun of him. It's like taking a dagger and driving it straight through the ribs into his heart. You might as well kill him because that's what he's experiencing. And the picture here is of husbands sacrificing themselves and wives respecting their husbands for that. It's a beautiful picture that is so rarely experienced in this fallen world. We tend to get confused, though, when we talk about leadership in marriage. Um, There are different views on this, but he talks about the husband as the head. And we tend to say head, therefore, means leadership. And I think that's, that's partly right. That certainly it, it includes that. Uh, and then we mistakenly apply the relationship of the workplace where we think of leadership as being the boss. Paul nowhere describes the husband as the boss. This is a self-sacrificial partnership where husband is denying himself for wife. Wife is respecting husband. Uh, it's, it's, it's not about who gets to make the important decisions. That's not what leadership means in a marriage. You know, the biblical wife in, in Proverbs sees a field and buys it. If you're in a relationship where you are the wife and you cannot make decisions without getting permission from your husband, without getting his approval, and every decision you make is there for his review, then you're in an unhealthy marriage because biblical male leadership In marriage, it is biblical and it does not mean being the boss. The wife sees a field, she buys it because he self sacrificially is freeing her up to do that work. You know, this is not a license for abuse in marriage. Leadership means taking the initiative to say, hey, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Leadership is saying, you know, things aren't right and I need to repent first. Leadership is saying we need to be reconciled. Leadership is being the first one to make amends. Leadership means taking responsibility. Leadership means taking blame. You know, we're talking about a beautiful picture of self-sacrificial love and respect. I don't claim to be a great leader I do, however, have a job title as lead pastor. And so I'm learning what this means. But I can tell you, I can count on one hand the number of times I, as the leader of a staff team, have had to uh, um, use the imperative tense. I never give anybody orders to do anything. It's almost unheard of. Because I don't have to. Because we have a vision. And as a leader, my job is to, to help cast that vision. And everybody on the staff team is on board with that vision. And we're all working really hard. And we've got amazing staff. And they get the vision. And they're sacrificing for it. And, and I never have to tell them what to do because I don't have to. And if there's something about which I have a strong opinion, they, they do defer to me. They respect me. That's, I think that's a picture of what leadership is, where you're not having to issue commands because you both have a vision of what God has called you to in your family and you're both sacrificing for that and you're both deferring to one another in that and you're not fighting over the crown, you're fighting over the towel. As Jesus washed your feet, you're wanting to wash each other's feet. That's a beautiful vision. That's being a servant. Uh, So what does leadership mean then? Um, Kathy Keller describes it. uh, She says you shouldn't think of the workplace, you should think of the dance floor. Because in order to dance well, you've got to have two things. You've got to have a man who knows how to lead and a woman who knows how to follow. And if you get that and you both get that vision and you're both pouring into that, you're going to have the time of your life. But if one of you doesn't get that, then you're both going to be sitting there on the sidelines with your arms folded miserable. Um, That's spiritual leadership, not who makes decisions, but going to God and doing it together in harmony with one another. The, The most common lament I hear from Christian wives and and some very strong, independent, successful, gender egalitarian Christian wives will still tell me the thing that disappoints them most about their marriage is they wish their husband would lead spiritually. Just lead, I don't care where you lead us, just lead. Please take the initiative. Say, let's go to God. Say let's open the word. Let's go to church. Let's grow in Christ. Let's sacrifice. Let's sell everything and give it to the poor. Anything, just please. I want. I want to follow. I want you to. I don't want to do all the leadership myself. Keith has actually described this as as uh, he describes it like like blues dancing, of which I know absolutely nothing whatsoever. Um, I don't even do ballroom dancing, but uh, but Keith says this. He says to hear the blues is to acknowledge our own reasons for sorrow. But to dance the blues is to connect with another person in the midst of it all because they know the blues too. But unlike most other dancing, at the core of blues dancing is that connection. And that connection comes from from placing your faith in another person, that they know what they're doing and they're not going to let you fall. And when done right, he says, the lead follows the music and the follow follows the lead and it's beautiful. The follow doesn't have to think about what comes next to make it work. In fact, if they try to anticipate the next steps, they can be led where they, they need they can't be led to to go where they need to go and the, and the dance just falls apart. In fact, it's those most confident about dancing alone that's trained ballet dancers. Uh, those with the most faith in their ability to get by on their own two feet who struggle the most with blues dancing says, maybe that's partly why we struggle in our marriages. We want to be in control. We want to know what comes next. We don't want to fully lean on another, even when that connection is what we need most to bring beauty out of our mess. Some of the greatest moves you'll see on the dance floor are the ones that rely fully on the lead's ability to stand for them both. And it's that connection, that result of total faith in another person, that makes it possible. That's the trust that comes when you know your partner is there for you. That your partner is prioritizing your well-being, your spiritual growth, and your future instead of their own. And when you're both doing that, that's a power and a beauty. That's a gospel marriage. Marriage is all about self-sacrifice, mutual submission, self-sacrificial love, respect. Uh, and that's because the purpose of marriage is, is to make you a better Christian. You know, Jesus says that being a Christian is about dying. And that's the image uh, of, of loving your wife as Christ loves the church that we have here. Uh, marriage is about dying to yourself every day. If it doesn't sometimes feel like you're dying, then you're probably not doing it right. If you're doing it right, it it, it should feel like you're doing things that you wouldn't otherwise do in order to accommodate another human being. It means uh, uh, you're you're taking the interest of your spouse into consideration and and weighing that more heavily than your own interests. Uh, And if we're willing to learn, marriage has the ability to teach us how to love. Uh, Marriage teaches you to be patient when God gives you a spouse who's slower than you are. Uh, Christ uses marriage to develop in you a kindness toward a fallen sinner like yourself. Uh, It's supposed to grind away your tendency to boast, to break you of your self-righteous anger, to train you to keep no record of wrongs as God keeps no record of your wrongs. It's designed to teach you to trust, to train you to protect, to grow your ability to persevere through hardship. That's love in 1 Corinthians 13, keeping no record of wrongs always trusting always protecting always persevering martin luther experienced this Uh, he had of course been a uh, a monk an augustinian monk which is the best kind of monk and uh and during the protestant reformation he he got married um to a nun and uh he found that living with a nun was a lot more challenging than living with 50 other monks uh because of the closeness and the intimacy and the dependence that you have. It just grinds away at your self-righteousness because it's always showing you what a big, horrible, rotten sinner you are. Luther, Martin Luther called marriage God's school of discipleship because if you're willing to learn, it can teach you how to love and a gospel vision is just that washing one another's feet saying I'm not just going to love you now when you're young and you're beautiful and you're amazing and I don't really know you that well yet Uh, I'm going to love you 50 years from now when when you don't have the figure and when you're old and wrinkly and I'm old and I'm wrinkly uh, when I've been stepping over your stinky underwear every single morning for the last couple decades that's saying i'm going to be the one who is going to empty your bedpan i am going to be the one who changes your diaper and i am going to want be the one to sit at your bedside until you pass into the next life i will never leave you in this life till death do us part this is the opposite of our culture's view on marriage as personal fulfillment um Marriage, biblically, is actually about giving of yourself, not getting. Uh, you, you do get in it, obviously. Don't, don't email me that one. I got that covered. But, uh, you know, if, if, if you're thinking about getting married today because you think you've found the person who's going to make you fulfilled, then you might not ought to get married at this time. I would recommend counseling first because marriage doesn't actually make you happy. Marriage makes you married. <laughs> you should marry... You should marry because God can use marriage to help you die every day, to help you then experience that resurrection power of Christ. You should marry a person who will encourage you to seek God in prayer, who wants to read and discuss God's word with you, somebody who's learning to do what God wants instead of what they feel like. Then in this fallen world, as God leads you through seasons of sorrow and hardship, through tears and losses, maybe even through marital hell, you both learn to pick up your crosses and follow Jesus every day as you grow closer to Christ and therefore grow closer to one another in him. There's nothing like marriage to show you how selfish and unthoughtful and inconsiderate and egocentric and impatient and judgmental and unloving a person you can be. So, Greg, how is that a good thing? It's a good thing because marriage is also all about the gospel cycle, the gospel cycle of full disclosure and complete acceptance. That's what Jesus does for us, and He's designed marriage to represent that. You know, He talks about how you know you should love your wife as Christ loved the church in order to sacrifice for her so she can be all radiant. He says, and He's talking about marriage. Then He says, "I'm not talking about marriage." He says, "I'm talking about Christ and the church," but what I'm saying also applies. To marriage. It's what we call the gospel cycle of marriage. What is the gospel cycle? The gospel cycle is the cycle of full disclosure and complete acceptance. Full disclosure meaning, okay, God, you see me completely naked. All of my shame, the stuff I, that just makes me turn red on the inside and want to run away, the stuff that makes me want to hide, you see all of that and you accept me fully, finally, forever in Jesus. And marriage, Paul is saying, is designed to reflect that gospel cycle so that your spouse can look at you and you've got to let them in. If you don't let them in, you're denying the power of marriage. But if you can let them in to see what you're most ashamed of, what's most broken, and then to receive from them complete acceptance in this sense, marriage truly is an evangelistic ministry. It's, it's beautiful to say, you know, I see your beauty and your character and your strength, but I also see your weaknesses and I see your insecurities and I see your fears and I am never going to leave you. I am here for you always. I will never abandon you. I will never recoil from you. I will never reject you. I will never replace you. I love you completely and without any qualification or conditions. I want you and I long for you and you are mine and I am yours and I wouldn't have it any other way and there is nothing that is going to change that. Not now. Not ever. That is the gospel cycle. Going through that cycle. Full Disclosure, complete acceptance again and again every day. You know, you don't have to minimize your sin. You don't have to hide. You don't have to rationalize it away or deny it. The gospel gives you the freedom to say, I am that bad of a person. That's why I do what I do. And then to respond and say, I love you and I'm committed to you. And with that honesty, that full disclosure, I grant you acceptance. On behalf of Christ, on behalf of his church, and as your spouse, I accept you and receive you and welcome you in my life today. It's leaving and cleaving, but also weaving together. That's why Paul you know, references this, this passage from, from Genesis. Uh, For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and the two will become one flesh, a complete personal union, economically, legally, personally, emotionally, spiritually, physically, psychologically, united with shared goals and dreams and values and loyalties, a shared faith, spirits woven into one. That's what an emotionally healthy gospel cycle, gospel marriage looks like. And sex within this kind of relationship is a sacrament in which you are saying, I am showing you physically that I am never going to leave you and I will be here with you, united to you for the rest of our lives. Put the gospel to use in your marriage. Let it create the kind of intimacy that you need, that you long for. We spend so much time, you know, defending marriage out there. And yet Scott Saul says this, he said, what if we focused on renewing marriages inside the church first, repenting of hardcore and softcore pornography habits, taking thoughts and fantasies captive that objectify the image of God reducing divorces where there's no biblical grounds, nurturing love and lingering conversation and hand-holding and fidelity and forgiveness and living face-to-face in intimacy within our marriages. For unless and until we become this kind of countercultural community amongst ourselves, showing the light of Christ that is in us as well as telling it, any zeal for biblical marriage or chastity out there is going to fall on deaf ears. Kay Warren found herself in marital hell. She shared a perspective. Healing had to come, but it was an agonizing process. She writes this. She says, I don't approach this subject from the Hallmark card version of marriage, but from the blood, sweat, and tears of the trenches where our marriage was forged and is sustained. She writes, I know what it's like to choose to build our relationship, to seek marriage counseling again and again, to allow our small group and our family into the struggle to determine one more time to say, let's start over and please forgive me and I was wrong and I forgive you. I know what it's like to admit that my way isn't the only way to see the world and to try to imagine what it's like to be on the other side of me, to choose to focus on what's good and right and honorable in my husband instead of what drives me crazy, to turn attraction to another man into attraction to my husband. I know what it's like to be cracked open by catastrophic grief and to share it with your spouse when you're so very different. She continues, Each of us is not who the other was looking for, but each of us is who the other desperately needed to become the person we are today. Yet it's also been the very best thing that has ever happened to either one of us. We wouldn't be who we are today without each other. The shrieks of iron sharpening iron have often sounded like gears grinding on bare metal. But the result has been profound personal growth in us both. That's putting the gospel to work in a marriage. That's full disclosure and complete acceptance. That's the gospel cycle. And that's hard work to persevere. For the sake of love, how is it possible to give that kind of love to a spouse? That's where the gospel comes in. Because that's exactly how Jesus loves you. Jesus, verse 25, gave himself up for you. That's the cross. Jesus submitted to you. Jesus yielded to you. Jesus gave up power for you. Jesus let go of everything for your sake because he loved you. Jeffrey Eugenides is a Pulitzer Prize winning author and in his novel, The Marriage Plot, one of his characters uh, named Mitchell moves to India after, after school, after graduation, as a young man in order to uh, volunteer helping the poor and the dying alongside Mother Teresa. And while he's there, it, he's hesitant to get dirty, he's hesitant to get too involved with those who are dying, and yet... Uh, finally after a couple weeks he gets pulled into it and there's a moment where he is there and responsible to take care of this sick and dying man and the dying man defecates massively in his own bed and Mitchell he freaks out and knowing he's going to regret the decision the rest of his life he bolts out the door and gets a train ticket to escape because there was a level there was a place That he was not willing to go. He discovered something awful about himself. There are things he simply could not stand. There were depths into which he could not plunge. He had untested limits. There was a degree to which his love could not go. It's just like the rest of us. But it's not like Jesus. Because what Jesus did in coming to earth was he dove down into the deepest level of human degradation. He came down from heaven to be to be degraded and betrayed and tortured with the lowest of human conditions, becoming a servant and ultimately dying, a shameful death the worst way possible, naked, stripped, abused, unimaginable physical pain, and then the anguish of being abandoned by God the Father in your place so that you would never be abandoned by God your Father. There is no darkness. To which a human being can descend that Jesus has not already descended and he did it because he loves you. The love of Jesus was so great he gave up everything to gain your love. Jesus gave himself up for you. That's the cross. You see, it's what we're all really looking for. We're all really looking for a better marriage. Put yourself in the shoes of those who are young and in love. Think of all the hopes and the dreams and the aspirations. I've seen so many of them on these stairs the guy in a rented tux or a nice suit the 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 woman in some beautiful thing the most beautiful she's ever been i've been in this town long enough i've seen it a whole lot and you think of all those longings that are bound up in the hope of marriage and then what happens but you find yourself tiptoeing around their underwear and you're just like i didn't sign up for this but you did sign up for this you just didn't understand every human spouse ultimately disappoints you, some of you have amazing spouses but there's a point in which they can never give you the kind of fulfillment that only god will be able to give it's still going to be empty without him it's it's there's only one who answers those longings so intimately you know we're looking for someone who will validate our existence We're looking for someone who will love us such that it actually moves us and we can feel tingly all over. We're looking for one who delights in us and will will make us one flesh with his own body. And that one is right here in verse 30. We are all members of his body, the body of Jesus. Jesus repeatedly describes himself as the church's bridegroom, the church's spouse, the church as his bride. And the apostles in the New Testament pick up on this language which itself was drawn from the Hebrew prophets as, as Isaiah 62 had said, as a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so will your God rejoice over you. I want you to hear the delight and the joy of the Savior's laughter as he rejoices over you. John Preston in 1630 said of Jesus that you are now bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh. You're united to him. He is is our great spouse he is the husband of the church he is the bridegroom and all those hopes and all those dreams and aspirations of your wedding day find their fulfillment but not in your spouse they find their fulfillment in the one who loved you and died for you that he might capture your heart john piper says sometimes we joke about marriage and we say the honeymoon is over but that's because we're finite And we can't sustain a honeymoon level of intensity and affection. We can't foresee the irritations that come with long-term familiarity. We can't stay as fit and as handsome as we were once. We, we can't come up with enough new things to keep the relationship that fresh. But God says his joy over his people is like a bridegroom over his bride. He's talking about honeymoon intensity, honeymoon pleasures, honeymoon energy and excitement, enthusiasm and enjoyment. And he's trying to get that into our hearts. That, that what, what he means when he says that he rejoices us rejoices over us with all of our heart. Friends, it's the gospel cycle the gospel cycle of God's marriage with you if you have Jesus. This longing, it's so deep in our humanity, so pervasive, this longing for a relationship in which I can be truly naked and yet loved and desired and accepted. We're all looking for validation for our souls, for our existence, and no partner can do that, but God can do that. Christ loved you, verse 25, and gave himself up for you, your Savior, full disclosure and complete blood-bought acceptance. Naked before God, and yet you wear in Christ an unremovable suit of forgiveness, adorned with the righteousness of Jesus. He presents you in verse 26 as holy. That's double imputation. When God is able, Christ is able to present you before his Father as one who is altogether holy in his sight. That means all of your guilt transferred to Jesus who bears it on the cross so you bear it no more. And the righteousness of Jesus, his honor, his holiness, transferred to you that you might walk about in the righteousness of Jesus as one who is altogether worthy, with whom your Father is pleased, one in whom he delights and sings over in song. That's full disclosure, complete acceptance without stain or wrinkle. Claim that promise without stain or wrinkle or blemish but holy and blameless and radiant in his sight. The gospel changes everything. The gospel cycle. God, you're fully disclosed. He completely accepts you. The gospel transforms duty into relationship. The gospel changes heaviness into joy. It changes performance into acceptance. Resentment into forgiveness. Law into love. The gospel of Jesus can take defensiveness and change it to extravagance. Extravagance towards your spouse and extravagance towards your God as he extravagantly loves and adores you. How much of our life do we spend on hair and makeup starting age 12, 13, 14, the focus on the clothes and then the iPhone? And later in life, it's on what neighbors think about your house or your yard or your car or your clothes, how much time you spend trying to cover up, trying to make ourselves acceptable to others, to God, to ourselves. And the gospel says you don't have to do this anymore. Friends, you don't have to be perfect. You don't have to be accomplished. You don't have to have the perfect house or the perfect looks or the perfect hair, the perfect face. You don't have to have perfect health. Your heavenly Father alone sees the real you. He knows what you're capable of. And in Christ, he is pleased with you. You are worthy. You are holy in his sight. And to him, you will always be radiant. What marriage is trying imperfectly to tell us is there is this relationship where you can be naked and accepted. And friends, it's bought by the blood of Jesus at that table as you come to him this morning. Understand he accepts you completely so that you can and turn to your spouse and accept them as they are, broken, damaged, so much less than God designed in the beginning. But you can accept them and love them and recommit yourself to them as God in Christ continually recommits himself to you, a Savior who loves you. How can you love your spouse? You have to be loved first, loved by God, And then he will enable you to love and do likewise. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for the beauty of the gospel, the love of a Savior who sees us intimately and accepts us. Father, I thank you that you delight in us, your people that you are pleased with us on account of Jesus. We pray, Father, as we approach this table, that you would look down upon this table and you would remember your covenant with us, that you would remember your body broken, that you would remember the blood of your Son, that you would look upon the righteousness of your Son, and you would remember your promise, Father, to always bless those who seek you in the name of your Son. We commit to you the elements on this table now in the name of Jesus. Amen. The Lord